Okay, hi and welcome back to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Uh, today is episode 65 and um, I'm pleased to bring to you guys another fantastic Canadian. I've had a lot of Canadian uh, rock stars on the show lately. I have Dr. John Berardi. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going today? No. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me and everyone listening in. Thanks for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate that. No, that, that's great. We appreciate your time. I know how, uh, well, for those that don't know who you are, and um, that, that would have to be people that live under a rock, um, <laughs> but, but um, you are, of course, the, the, the founder of Precision Nutrition. Uh, I remember, um, uh, not, well, it's not just the influence of Precision Nutrition has been on me. I did the Precision Nutrition certification about five, six years ago, um, which I found incredibly useful at a time when um, I was back in graduate school, I was doing a, a nutrition master's degree, uh, but mm. I, I kind of didn't know what I was doing with actual clients. Um, and I found the precision nutrition certification really, really good at uh, the actual sort of coaching side of things, how to work with clients, uh, habit and behavior change, anyway, stuff we can get into in a minute. Um, but also you, um, had uh, a number of publications out at the time or had contributed a lot to the whole sort of nutrient timing stuff and I remember reading a lot of your stuff there. Um, now, um, for those that don't know who you are, for those that need a little reminding as, as to who you are, do you, do you want to perhaps just give us a quick overview as to who John Berardi is? Yeah, I'm happy to. So, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I'm uh, the co-founder of Precision Nutrition. And for those who don't know what Precision Nutrition is, we're essentially a nutrition um, education, coaching, and certification company. So uh, we started in the early 2000s, I think it was 2001, was our first iteration of the company. And uh, nowadays we're coaching directly through the internet. Um, so it's basically online nutrition and fitness and health coaching for clients. Um, about uh, 20,000 people a year. And uh, the fun part about that is then what we learn through that practice of coaching and working with real people, in fact, quite a lot of them, um, we turn into education for professionals. So whether that be fitness professionals, health coaches, that sort of a thing. And uh, on that front, we are actually certifying or enrolling about 20,000 students a year. Mm. So it's this really cool kind of... Um, I don't know. We think of it like the uh, the recycling kind of graphic. I, I don't know. Um, you know, we have a global audience here, I'm sure, but at least in in North America, everyone thinks of the uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. So it's kind of like these circles that form, or these arrows that form into a circle, and that's how we think about our knowledge creation and dissemination at Precision Nutrition. So we are out actually coaching people, lots of them, and in the coaching process, we learn a ton of things. Mm. And then what we do is we flip that into education for other professionals. So then we teach those things, and then those professionals go out and then they 
apply it in their communities or in their um, demographic or whoever they're working with. And then they feed that back to us where, and then we get to learn from them. And then we turn that into new coaching programs. And so you can see the cycle continues. You learn by coaching, then you teach what you've learned, then you send others out to, to coach also, and then they bring back what they're finding, and then it goes back into the mix. And it's really, really a fun way of, uh, I think, producing new knowledge and new practices. So that's, that's the precision nutrition end of things. Yep. And, um, you know, prior to Precision Nutrition, I was, uh, you know, a, a forever student. I was, you know, I did a, a master's in exercise science, and then I went on and did a PhD in exercise and nutritional biochemistry. So, you know, I've, I've uh, published a number of papers. I've worked with a lot of elite um, sport teams, professionals, and Olympic level. And um, so that's like some of the fun stuff I've done over the years. And then now most of my time is spent on this mission of ours at Precision Nutrition. We have we have about seventy full time team members. We're you know we're coaching uh, twenty thousand clients and certifying twenty thousand students a year. So that's keeping me pretty busy lately. But that's that's the quick tour of of uh, I guess uh, my background yeah. professionally. Yeah. No. Thanks. So yeah. And I, I guess your greatest achievements now is you you've got uh, you've got kids. Which you didn't have when uh, when I when I first interacted with you guys. So um, I know that's uh, that's probably your busiest situation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's fun though because it it teaches you. I, we have three children now, and and uh, we're working on a fourth. So um, wish us luck. The uh, you know the, the thing is, uh, anyone who's probably been through graduate school knows uh, if you're single and you don't have any children at the time. You basically have a lot of time to <laughs> do stuff, you know what I mean? And that, that you're, so you can, um, you can work as many hours of the day as you want to. And, and in fact, there were many times in graduate school where I, I chose work over sleep. So that changes though when you have kids, right? I mean, now yeah. if you like have a certain commitment to spending time with them and helping your partner and stuff like that, which not everyone does, but I do. Yeah. And, uh, then all of a sudden there's, there's only X hours a day where you can work and it, it actually forces you to reevaluate your practices. I, I, I refuse to stay up all night and work on an article anymore. Um, I work on it during my work hours, you know, and then I sleep when I sleep and I'm, I'm hanging with my family when I'm hanging with my family. And so it's actually, it's a weird twist of uh, being forced into productivity, you know, or efficiency. Um, and it, it's kind of cool. So I don't necessarily feel any less or any, any more busy uh, now that I have three children. Um, I think you know, again, the work expands to fill the time available. So sure. uh, it's, it's, but it's awesome. It's great. No, it is. Uh, although I, I was going to say, uh, uh, having children myself, um, uh, I still don't get a choice as to whether I get to sleep or not. <laughs> as uh, uh, seems, seems to be an, an extreme luxury. So, um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you um, was not just because you're a wealth of knowledge, um, but my own personal uh, research interest, and, and which is a, a focus of my own doctorate, is this business of um, you know applying um, what we learn into practice. So do, you know, um, and that's one of the things this, this podcast does. It's, it's, it's one of my research themes actually. Is this business of transforming science into practice? And as practitioners, we do need to be mindful of not only 
are we working with real people? And I've mentioned this in many podcasts before, particularly for those that work with athletes and elite athletes. They're, yes, they're athletes. Yes, they might be Olympians, professional football or soccer players or professional rugby players or whatever, but they're also human beings first. But so are we as practitioners. And, and we mm-hmm. also have to get the work balance thing right. And it does play a role in how we interact with our clients our ability to communicate with clients, our ability to do our own jobs properly, but also, and I and I've I've been sort of talking with some of my own students, my own graduate students, about this stuff, and you know they're the young guys, like you said, like you were saying, they, these are the guys that seem to have loads of time. They're they're single or happily single, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and they uh, don't have the you know, the, the, the responsibilities and constraints that, that, that we might have. So, of course, they can spend all day on Twitter. They can spend all day, you know, writing on the Internet and reading books and so on. But, you know, quantity does not equal quality. And mm-hmm. um, that can be a, a major issue. So my role as a, a teacher and as a mentor, having been through, you know, all this stuff over the last two decades of, you know, making loads of mistakes, having attended loads of the wrong courses and so on you know you learn from those things Mm -hmm. um but getting all that into balance is is an art form um and that is something that isn't often discussed when it comes to being a good practitioner a good coach we you know we we, you hear people talk about things like being evidence-based it's all about the evidence um Mm -hmm. but evidence perhaps may not be as big a part of what makes your intervention successful there might be you know, it's just down to you, your own communication styles, how people buy into the messages that you give, the, you know, the tools and resources that, that you give, your ability to understand their readiness to take upon those interventions that you do, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that you guys have learned huge amounts of. And, and what I love about what you've done at, at PN is, is, is just huge amounts of work-based research. You, you've, mm-hmm. you don't just, you don't just, tell people what to do you actually evaluate and reevaluate. and in your various blogs and teachings over the years that i followed you know you've always left me with one thing that i find immensely important and that is being outcome based in one's thinking and approach and perhaps you've modified that somewhat but but mm-hmm. it, it is just remembering what the outcomes are um yeah so, that's true so john look um um so I don't keep waffling on here. What well, you know, firstly, as you look upon the many years now of of successes with what you've been doing, even with your own personal clients, and I know you've worked with lots of elite athletes and all sorts of things, but also with the successes that you guys have with your various coaching programs at PN, could you perhaps summarise on reflection what you feel some of the biggest lessons are that you've learnt? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, you you start off, uh, you started off, and the the point of this podcast is is basically right in line with one of the original taglines of our early business, which was translating research into results. So, I was a graduate student at the time, and I was fascinated by all the things I was learning, and I assumed everyone else would be equally fascinated, and that their understanding of the things I was learning would translate into something practical for them. Uh, a re- Results, you know, whether it was a body composition change or um, a reduction in a, a competitive time or something like that, and um, I, I guess the greatest lesson that I got was, 
you know, I think I was just finishing up my master's and I'd started my PhD and I started to get invited to come speak to uh, elite sports teams. And I, and I, uh, I think it was the United States uh, bobsleigh team. And um, I got invited to come speak to them. And I was, I was super pumped because I had all of, I had this, I'd built this epic slideshow and I had all of this data I wanted to share. And there was, it was the early days. I mean, nowadays everyone has, has talked about and researched post-workout nutrition kind of ad nauseum. But back then there was nothing. I mean, John Ivey was doing some really, really preliminary research and my whole PhD was on the, on the topic. And so I had post-workout, pre-workout, all this stuff, and, and I was so excited. And so I had prepared like a half-day lecture on all the science. And I, so I'm standing at the front of the room and the bobsled athletes start filtering in when it's time for the talk. And, you know, half of them are late. And six, <laughs> you know, six guys come in at the same time with bags of McDonald's. Mm. And I'm thinking, like, I, I'm going to have to rethink my approach here. You know, it was like, it was like the earliest wake-up call for me, which was I assumed because they were high-level athletes that uh, a presentation – uh, had to match that in terms of nutrition and that the things I was interested in they would be interested in and that presenting data on sports science would get them pumped and motivated and that's what everyone was kind of doing at the time too I was just kind of that's what I noticed my uh, professors who were speaking to elite sports teams were doing and, and, and uh, it just became apparent very quickly that like you said these were real humans who uh, you know needed basic practices, not scientific um, overviews. And so it just, I, I had to, you know, I was kind of unprepared for that. And uh, it was a great wake up call. And I'm so, ha I'm so thankful it happened early in my career because it could make me really think through this process. So translating research in, into results or, you know, taking findings from the bench out into the real world is a great catchphrase. But if you're listening to this and that's all you think it is, it's a catchphrase, oh, it's a witty little thing that I say um, to talk about what I do. But all you're doing is just you know, writing articles for people like you hmm. that just aren't published in scientific journals. You're not quite doing it yet. It's that moment where you walk in front of a, an actual team or a, a group of clients and you go to present to them and they come in with bags of McDonald's that makes you wake up and say, oh, wait, I'm really falling from translating research into results right now. I actually need to do something different with this. And um, it, it becomes a moment to really clarify personally what you want to do with your career. Because if you want to present scientific findings to the lay public, um, it's not quite what you think it is. I mean, what you're doing if you're presenting scientific findings to the public in many ways is... Uh, you're either choosing between being a coach and being a disseminator of information or a journalist. Um, if you choose to be a journalist, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's important not to confuse the two. Uh, you can't take the same message to a group of personal trainers, for example, as you can to a group of personal training clients. And I know it probably when I say this, it sounds evident, but I, I travel all around the world doing lectures and I see people confusing the two. They're making the mistake of thinking that because they understand the science, just kind of watering it down a little bit and putting it into plain language 
is translation. Mm. And it kind of is, but it's not coaching, right? Mm. Coaching is something altogether different. So that's that was one of the most powerful early lessons for me. And you know, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast regularly are you know sports scientists and graduate students and work in university or work in science and some are personal trainers and so this is the message i would have needed to hear and maybe i wouldn't have even liked it or listened to it when i was younger um but it's the message that would have been most important to me early on it's really clarify what you want to do um do you want to just disseminate information if so that's cool and there's there's avenues for that but do you want to be a coach it's another question so that's one that's really stuck with me over the years yeah hey john sorry you still there yeah 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 no that was great no there was uh, uh we almost got disconnected there so i i mean that is what fascinates me about this stuff and that's one of the themes that we've explored on this this podcast because I've had a lot of um, uh, uh, sort of world uh, class uh, researchers, um, um, some fantastic uh, professors, and, and uh, uh, various kinds of experts have been on here. But one theme that does start to come out from this, and and I'm saying this is what the the professors themselves are saying is, hey, hang on, guys, um, just because I'm saying this in my paper, just because I've published this conclusion. Um, doesn't mean that you're supposed to take it that way, um, it, you know, with your clients, etc. In the real world, this is a mechanistic study. Um, it, whatever we found, whatever we did, it is within the realms of, of, you know, how the study was designed. And you need to be careful how you interpret that information. But of course, most people um, they don't know how to, uh, you know, to differentiate good science from bad science. They don't know how to read a paper, and often they confuse the information that comes from that science and like you say um and we hear this all the time you, you know you 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 hear pts or nutritionists or coaches or whatever talking about something that they've read or they've heard and 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 it sort of sounds all sciencey and stuff but actually what firstly they've misunderstood what they've read um and or they're not you know they're not helping people understand um, the information um, appropriately and therefore they're confusing people and in a previous podcast we talked about you know the issues with over sciencing stuff mm-hmm. um, and yes on the one hand we need to know the rocket science because if we don't understand what's going on you know uh, if we don't have sufficient knowledge to be able to explain why we're doing what we're doing or why we're telling people to what we're doing I mean, it's basically just guesswork or we're blagging it to use a, mm-hmm. a more british term um yeah. but on the other hand um that isn't everything there's there's huge complexities to the individuals that we work in i, I sort of have a catchphrase on this podcast it's all about context um mm-hmm. it is very much a, conce- a contextual issue it, it is very much a, it depends but oftentimes um the rocket science is is, is actually a pretty small part of the situation isn't it yeah it is yeah i mean i i, I often differentiate it and stratify it like this mm-hmm. there's what you as the practitioner and professional needs to know and then there's what your client needs to know and i i you know in my workshops i challenge people to come up with lists of the two where they're differentiated so people who are listening in can actually play this little game at home you know where you where you write down 
what are the things that you as a professional actually need to know? And then what things do your clients need to know that are different from that? And when you start thinking in those terms, you start to realize that, you know, it's the iceberg situation. All the, all the iceberg that's under the water is what you need to know. And only what's peeking out over the top is what your clients need to know. And, uh, and when, you can, uh, when you can understand the difference and you can have two separate lists, uh, you start to become a better practitioner. And, um, you know, I, I think about it kind of... Um, you know, in these terms, you know, you, you mentioned context and that's, that's what we say often, you know, the one thing we really, really do well at Precision Nutrition is help people, you know, eat better, live better, move better in the context of a real human life. Research studies rarely in the context of a real human life, right? I mean, you try and control variables um, and, and, measure, and you're measuring, right, which, which actually isn't typical for people either, right, because measurement actually often changes behavior itself. So you have this situation where findings are coming um, out of an environment that isn't the context of a real human life, and then you have to turn it into a recommendation for the context of a real human life. And when I say context of real human life, let me make it really plain. Um, so you just worked all day, you came home, you have two children, they're hungry for dinner. Um, you have a dog and it just pooped on the floor. This is the time you're supposed to go to work out, but the kids need to be fed and you have to clean up the poo. Um, what works here? You know, this is the context of a real human life. Things go wrong. Things are crazy. Things are unexpected. How do you help someone, uh, and this is not just your average personal training client, the elite athletes face this as well, and if you've never worked with any, you're making a mistake in thinking that this isn't their life too. In many cases, let's say if you work at the Olympic level, theirs is pretty crazy too because they don't have funding. So they're living in a crappy apartment, they work two part-time jobs uh, to barely make ends meet, and then they train two, three times a day. And they might have pets that poop on the floor too. Uh, so you have these scenarios where life is busy and crazy and unexpected and difficult. And optimal isn't uh, on the menu for you on most days. So how do you take what you know as a professional and plug it into the context of that life I just described? And if you can do that, you become invaluable. If you can't do that then um, your utility as a coach um, or as a consultant is very limited. And you'll, you'll face that very quickly. No matter how smart you seem to the athlete, and at first to a group of athletes, when you seem really smart, they'll be like, yeah, 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 okay, this is, the, this is who I want to get my advice from until it hits the context of their life. And then they'll be like, uh, yeah, but what about this coach? What about this coach? What about this coach? And if you don't have the answers to that, your utility runs out pretty quickly. So that's why I say, try and figure out what the difference is between what you know and what they should know. Yeah. And also about how to deliver um, content into the context of a human life. And I can talk about that even a little bit more when I say this. One of the arts of coaching is actually staging out information so that it appears in its proper context 
and I can, and you can think of that as like a timeline, right? When working with a new client who hasn't ever attended to good nutrition before, what must come first? And then what has to come after that? And then what has to come after that? If there's a lot of personal trainers listening in, I always like to make this analogy. Think of a complex movement. So let's say it's doing an Olympic lift, right? Let's say it's a clean or a snatch or something like that. The best Olympic coaches will take someone who's never done that movement before. They'll probably chunk out the movement into its component parts. Before they ever even do that, they do some type of assessment to see if like all of your limbs can move biomechanically, like hips, joints, you know, ankles, shoulders. So they'll do an assessment and if the assessment shows that you can't even do the movement, they'll work on sort of a regression version of even the chunks of the Olympic movement to build you up to the point where you can even do the chunks and then you do the chunks and then eventually three, six months down the road, you're able to actually do a proper Olympic snatch. Um, in nutrition, coaching, lifestyle, we have to think of it the same way. And if we don't, it's to our peril. You know, saying, oh yeah, well, you know, science has shown that a X carb diet, whatever it might be, high carb, low carb, whatever, plus the systematic application of post-workout nutrition, plus these three nutrients, which affects these three biochemical pathways, leads to the greatest, uh, you know, increase in anaerobic power. So you're like, okay, that's cool. But that's like saying, hey, Here's a bar, start snatching it on day one hmm. to a person who doesn't know how to even think about doing the motor pathways. So I often say that you know, translating research into results means taking the complex universe of ideas, and some of these ideas are really rudimentary to you because you study this, and breaking it out into almost like a chronology. So write a timeline, you know? Week one, week three, week five, week seven. At which stage should each new piece of knowledge come in and what piece should come in where? So this actually takes a level of systematic thought that actually transcends individual scientific principles, right? Like you can think through a scientific process and be really smart about that and still need to level up to think systematically about how to deliver information to a, a human. And so you might say, all right, so if I can only roll one new thing into their practice, so let's say you have an athlete and you're, let's say you're going to have the good fortune of working with them for six months. If I can roll one new practice in every couple of weeks, first I have to understand which practices are most important. And those are the ones that'll come first or sooner because they're foundational. Mm -hmm. And then I have to understand how long it probably takes to figure that out. Then I have to figure out when the next practice should come in. And to me, this is actually the art of coaching, but it's not just coaching. This is actually a specific type of coaching. It's coaching change. It's, and, and in the case of nutrition and uh, supplementation and, and health, this is the exact type of coaching you're doing. It's not like you're standing on the gym floor and coaching movement, okay? It's a, that's a different thing. This type of coaching means having this type of systematic thought of saying, well, wait, I can't, someone isn't going to be able to do all the things that I think are important in the beginning. So I'm going to have to stratify levels of importance. I'm going to have to come up with a specific pathway 
for getting them to the point where they can do all those things over time. So now I need to know which things should come before which other things. And then I have to know when uh, humans may be ready. And then I have to know how to assess to figure out if they are ready. Remember the example of the, of the snatch, right? Is there a biomechanical deficiency that's going to prevent them from going to the next stage? And um, we actually recently published an article on this at, at uh, Precision Nutrition. And um, we called it Precision Nutrition Coaching Revealed. And what I do is I actually give a, a bunch of worksheets that show how to build almost like a coaching curriculum. So it's like, how do you over time stair-step someone to proficiency and mastery in whatever they're working on? Mm -hmm. uh, it could be uh, learning to eat better, it could be uh, learning to play the guitar, whatever it might be. Um, in this very strategic and systematic way of presenting things one at a time, at the right time, in the right context, so that the probability of success is really high. Because if you do it any other way, you'll have people who succeed, but you'll have a lot of people who don't. And then you're leaving it to chance. And I hate leaving it to chance, especially when we work with thousands and thousands of people. And in the internet age, if you leave it to chance, the people who don't have success with your system can be loud. So, <laughs> you know, uh, all of a sudden, uh, people are devaluing your brand, your, your coaching. So... For me, I want to do everything I can to increase the probability of success, and this is the way to do it. It's to be very systematic and strategic in your delivery of practices. And so for anyone who's, who's uh, really kind of intrigued by what I'm talking about here, you know, again, we actually have uh, some, it's free, we just give it away for free, worksheets where you can print this out and it shows you how to build what I call like a coaching curriculum. Hmm. Um, to walk people through. So it, it doesn't matter what the goal is. If you can figure out, uh, I think of it this way, if there's a goal, um, you can't just achieve a goal out of thin air. So what you need is you need to, de to build skills. There's skills to develop that uh, lead you to a goal. But skills are hard to develop on their own without daily practices. So, that's, so it's like a three-tiered system. So if you figure out the daily practices to do every two weeks or whatever the case may be, and those practices are lumped together in a skill development domain, and then those skills lumped together to produce the goal, that's your systematic way of thinking about helping people achieve. So it's kind of like um, you have to lay out the skills that you think someone ought to develop, then you have to lay out the practices that live under each skill, and then you have this beautiful curriculum in front of you and it's easy like you just simply follow it for two weeks do this and then the next two weeks do this and obviously uh, that has to dovetail nicely with what's actually happening with the client so are they able to systematically do it if not then you have to adjust using the best practices of coaching but to me most people would be way further ahead by using this kind of model of curriculum development for skill acquisition and goal achievement no, that's awesome. I, I have to admit that, I mean, keeping things simple is, it's incredibly effective. Um, but it is something that, that most people don't do. Um, again, I've explored, yeah. I've explored this often, actually, on this podcast. It, it, you know, we, I guess the people who want to do this for a living, they want to coach people, they want to teach people. What is admirable, and this is a, this is a plus sign, um, is the sheer level of enthusiasm in these people is is amazing? They're, they're obsessed. 
They learn everything. Mm. They want to talk about it. But what they don't realize is is that that rather than making their clients life simpler, they start speaking at them, uh, you know, in rocket science language. They they get into all these cool, amazing things that we've discovered in 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 nutrition. But what they haven't necessarily done is how can I make my clients life easier, which will make it more likely as you as you pointed yeah. out to be able to implement these things every day to develop that that mastery that 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 have you know those daily habits yeah well i like to reframe the concept of simple because i i i think it's meaningful but i don't like it for two reasons mm. one is when you tell the clients that you're going to give them simple it's actually patronizing yep. right so imagine that i am a very successful guy in another field Field. And so I don't know anything about health and fitness, but you cleaning know, up dog poops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I make I make five hundred thousand dollars a year, and I'm an executive at a large company that's respected. And so I hire you as a trainer or coach. And here's what you tell me: Well, you know, I know you're a successful guy in a bunch of other domains, but here you don't know anything. And in fact, you don't have much capacity. And I don't have much confidence that you can do anything that I'll ask you to do. So I'm going to make it really, really simple. I'm going to make it like, uh, like you're a little baby. And you can't handle very much, so we'll just do little baby things. And then it'll be slow, but over time, um, you'll be able to do more little baby things. Like all of a sudden, I'm feeling like I'm in the wrong place. I'm an ass-kicking achiever, and you're just going to give me little baby things to do. And that doesn't resonate with me. It feels patronizing. So that's the first problem with it. The second problem is simple alone isn't effective. Like I can give you a whole bunch of simple things that are meaningless and um, won't make a difference. And you can keep giving them to me or I can keep giving them to you and nothing will change. Mm. So I think simple is important when it's buffed by or maybe even bolstered by a bunch of other S's and I call it like the five S's. So one is that it has to be um, strategic. So to me that means it has to address a person's limiting factor as it exists today. So if time is my limiting factor, the next habit you give me has to do with time. Uh, and food or whatever. Uh, if, you know, let's say I'm a woman and I'm chronic low energy and I don't eat much meat, it doesn't take too much to figure out, oh, maybe I should look at iron, you know? And uh, to me, if you have a woman in front of you and she's uh, anemic and there's an iron deficiency, um, should I make her follow a complex, multi tiered nutritional system? Or should I just give her some freaking iron and get her feeling better within the next couple of weeks? It's like if someone's dehydrated, you fix the dehydration, all of a sudden they're feeling better and they think you're a genius. And you don't have to get them to stop eating carbs or whatever the fashion of the day is. Yeah, hey John, sorry, we just lost you there. So um, uh, you were just mentioning about your uh, strategic S's here. Oh yeah, okay, cool. So yeah, I was just saying how, you know, I think the concept of simple is limited in that, you know, psychologically, it doesn't really help clients feel respected. Uh, and, but also, it doesn't actually make coaches feel like it's going to work. So there has to be more. So for me, the next one is strategic. And, you know, the, the idea behind strategic is 
that it addresses someone's limiting factor as it stands today. So, you know, the examples I like to give there are, let's say someone's dehydrated. Mm. So you don't need to uh, build them a complex multi-tiered nutrition and supplement plan to make them feel better. You can just fix their dehydration and all of a sudden they think you're a wizard. Mm. And uh, a woman who might have, uh, you know, not eat much meat and is feeling tired all the time, um, again, someone with even a very preliminary knowledge of nutrition might say, oh, I wonder if she's getting enough iron and is experiencing some symptoms of anemia. Uh, again, same deal. You just you give her some iron and all of a sudden she feels fantastic and thinks you're a genius. Um, but if you built a multi-tiered, complicated nutrition program in either one of those scenarios that doesn't happen to fix the dehydration or the uh, iron deficiency, they don't feel any better and they're working super hard. So for me, that's what strategic means. It means you hone in on the one limiting factor, the one thing, and that can make all the difference. And then, of course, you know, I have, uh, but that's not enough either. For me, like when you want to uh, achieve a larger goal, uh, it's too big of a problem to solve. It's like the snatch. Um, you need to chunk it out, which is one of the other S's, which is segmental. You have to break it down into the, the smallest possible parts of the goal or the skill, and then you deliver those. But you can't just give segments randomly. They have to be sequential, which is the next S. So it has to be a part of the whole that they're working on, and it has to come in the right order. Thing one has to come before thing two, which has to come before thing three, which has to come before thing four. And then the last one I would say is supported. So there has to be someone available. It doesn't have to necessarily always be a coach, but um, it could be nowadays there are apps that track consistency and compliance and uh, the habits you're following. So again, I mean, I think simple is a good concept in that it gets people thinking about the smallest possible things someone could work on, but it's not enough. It also has to have these other things. It has to be strategic. It has to be uh, part of the whole, segmental, then it has to come in the right order, sequential, and then there has to be some support. Yeah. And if you can do all of those things, now someone, fe a client feels like, oh, there's a system here, and I'm not being patronized. There's actually a, a method to this. And then the coach feels efficacious. It feels like I'm actually doing things according to a known order yeah. rather than, well, I'm just making it little baby steps for people. I don't want them to do baby steps. I want them to be hardcore and disciplined and I can just lump this big pile of instructions on them and then they'll just be hardcore and go do it. And But they won't. So then I just have to make it this little wimpy intervention that's simple. Um, to me, this methodology I'm talking about bridges the two, yeah. right? If yeah. you can do something that's efficacious but small, yeah. that actually makes it happen faster because this is the biggest objection that I hear from uh, trainers and coaches when I present this. It's, well, this little baby habit thing of yours, because they still think, think of it this way, right? This simple thing of yours sounds great from an applied practice perspective, but will it do anything? Maybe it's too slow. Maybe it's not big enough of an impact. Yeah. And I think it certainly won't do anything if you just make it simple, but you give people practices that aren't useful or meaningful or make a difference. Yeah. It actually can go faster if you do it the way that I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 Yes. No, Joe, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, simply there's just one extra S and that is it's got to be sexy. <laughs> it really yeah, does right, yeah. because because that's how people it's interesting isn't it how people need 
that special little something, another S, uh, it's a couple of S's there. In fact, we get up a whole bunch of S's. But, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I have found that in my own practice, um, that, that methodology, which actually I'd learned from you when I was doing the precision nutrition thing, has, has stayed with me to this day. And it has been a very successful part of my own approach uh, to clients. But of course, I'm also now in the business of trying to sell knowledge um, mm-hmm. to people and, and that is that is where I think you know you mentioned uh, the internet and uh, social media and you know that, that I guess that's where I'd start throwing in that, that word sexy again because mm-hmm. that is where some of the uh, to use an English phrase um, the nut jobs start coming out of the woodwork <laughs> don't they and you know you get people who swear blind that the only way to lose weight is to go low carb um, we mm-hmm. all everyone needs to be keto adapted um, especially if you're an endurance athlete you know what how do you and I'm talking about this from a practitioner, from a coaching perspective. How how do you deal with that um, yourself, or or with PN, with with all those extremes that you undoubtedly come against? Sure. So, do you mean in terms of how do we address that with our clients? Yeah. Like when they yeah. ask. Yeah, because they're yeah. going to walk into that, aren't they? With with an assumption that well, surely, uh, surely I need to go low carb or whatever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's a great question and one of my favorites actually, because you know when I go and I teach. Uh, people ask me these kind of things all the time. Well, I have a woman who comes in and she read this and she's uh, got her mind made up. She's going to do this particular thing that I think is unhealthy. So to me, actually, this is the area where coaching and counseling techniques like motivational interviewing come really uh, become really useful. So I think, first of all, there's, there's a problem in our profession so I'm going to point the finger directly at practitioners right now. So steal yourselves, listeners. Um, the, uh, the idea that when a client comes in and they have an opinion on something, and it might be a, a ill-formed opinion, that we have to quickly disabuse them of their incorrect notion, let them know that we are the boss, that we know better, and that they should just do what we recommend is part of the problem with our entire industry. It's this idea that when someone comes in with something we don't think is valid, we must quickly eradicate that practice from their brain and set them on the right path. It's, it's frankly arrogant because it presumes that we know all. Not only do we know all about exercise and nutrition, which we certainly don't spend any time in the research and there's way, way more uncertainty than there is certainty. Hmm. So we don't know all. A, and B, that we know all about that particular client, right? About the human we're working with. Oh, I know what you need. Do you really know what your client needs? Mm. You don't even know the truth of how their body works. Mm. And it's no fault of yours. It's just a limitation of knowledge in general. So you don't know how their body works and you don't know them well enough to know what they need. So this presumption that when a client comes in and says, oh, hey, coach, I read this. And I think I ought to try this. And in your brain, you're like, well, you're an idiot and you don't know anything. And you just saw that on Dr. Oz or whatever the popular medical program is of the day. Um, And I think you need to stop talking like that. And I'm going to show you who knows. And it's me and I'm going to tell you what to do now. I think it's, it's the height of arrogance. No one calls out our profession on this like our our coaches our professionals who teach the coaches don't call each other out on this and I think it's time we ought to be called out Mm. you may not know better yet so if 
if you can live with that, that idea of some level of uncertainty, like you can still be a coach and not be sure about every answer to every question, then you can play this next game, which I think is supremely useful. So a client come in, comes in and says, I want to try a cleanse or a detox or a, a thousand calorie diet or name anything that drives like listeners. I'm asking you to do this. What is the one thing that drives you crazy when clients come in and bring it up with you? Think of that thing right now and plug it in as our example. Okay. It's going to be your biggest pet peeve. Okay. When a client comes in and says they want to try this and you hate that thing for whatever reason. So then I want you to think about how hard would it be to just let them try it for a little bit? So here's how the dialogue might go. So client comes in, let's call her Jane. And Jane comes in and says, hey, uh, JB, which is what my friends call me. Hey, JB, I was just reading about this thing on, you know, Cosmo, whatever, magazine. And it's this particular diet. And I'd really like to give it a try. It seems like people are getting great results from it. Okay. So now on the inside, there's this little circle of blackness and hate that is growing. And I'm thinking, oh, why did she bring this to me today? I hate the thing that she just mentioned and I don't want her to do it. But as a coach, I can't do that because if I have a new client and she has, a, I guess maybe let me frame it this way. Every time someone comes to me with something that drives me a little bit crazy, I ask myself, what is good about what they just brought me? So let me tell you what's good about what that client just did. If she was a new client or maybe she was a little bit overweight or maybe she um, just hasn't been thinking about nutrition much in her life to date, I think it's actually kind of cool that she was reading about nutrition and thinking about it. Exactly. Yeah. So I start thinking that immediately. Oh, isn't this kind of cool? Yeah, maybe she found some of the quote unquote wrong information. But I think it's actually neat that she's actually doing a search for this in her life in the first place. So I'm going to start by praising that. I'm going to say, wow, that was really, really cool, Jane. So like, were you just reading up on new nutrition practices for fun on the weekend or whatever? Or, well, and now all of a sudden she's proud. She's like, well, you know, I, I didn't, ever since we've been talking about nutrition, you really got me thinking about a lot of things. So I'm reading articles on it and sometimes I search the internet. And now all of a sudden, something I thought was really bad that she glommed on to something I thought wasn't a good practice turns into a positive coaching connection I can make with her. I praise her. She thinks she's feeling awesome because she actually got praise from her coach. And now we can start from a deeper connection place. So then I might say something like, well, that article that you found, uh, I'm not sure it's actually the right practice for you right now. Um, but I don't want to convince you that it's not. What I'd rather say is you can try that or I have these other two things that you could try that I think would actually work better for your body, where you are in terms of your coaching journey, etc., etc. Let's decide together among those three what you should go with. And then you can have a real conversation where she has agency and autonomy and she can make a choice. She's an adult after all. She's not a little kid. So you can't just boss her and tell her what to do. You have to engage on an adult to an adult level. And so you give her the choice among things. And then let's say your worst fear comes true and she chooses the wrong thing, the thing you didn't want her to do. Well, unless you think it will actually do irrevocable harm, you can actually let her try it. 
And this just, when I teach trainers this, this flabbergasts them at first, but then I let them sit with it and they come around eventually. Because you could say something like, well, okay, cool. Well, you chose the one that I probably wouldn't have chosen, but it's okay. Because in my coaching practice, we try things and we test them. It's the scientific method. It's beautiful how it works. You try something new. You're not quite sure how it's going to work out. You measure after two weeks. If it goes really well, you keep going for another few weeks. And if it doesn't, you change. So how about this? We'll commit to that practice. Again, I don't think it's the best one for you. But if you really, really want to try it, we'll give it a go for two weeks. At the end of two weeks, we'll measure these three things. And if they haven't changed positively or if they go in the wrong direction, then we'll consider making a change. How does that sound, Jane? You see how this was a totally different coaching conversation than Dr. Oz is an idiot. Cosmo has shit training advice Mm. and nutrition advice. And we're not doing that. It's a totally different exchange. And the only thing that makes that exchange possible, because you can't fake it. If you try and fake it, they will know. You have to believe that you are using the scientific method in the coaching process. You have to believe that you don't know everything. And you have to believe that there's something good about every client that comes in. If you can learn those things, you can be a phenomenal coach. If you can't, there might not ever be any hope for you. So for me, that's, that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is, let's say someone comes in and says, I want to do a low-carb diet. Well, the nine out of 10 fitness pros will say, no, we don't do do low carb around here. And the one out of 10 will say, yes, that's what we do here. Um, And you're either confirming, you're just simply confirming your own biases and foisting them on the client. Um, It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, And the the way around it is a much deeper, more subtle and nuanced perspective where you treat clients like adults. You engage them in the coaching process. And you entertain the idea that no matter how silly you think something is, it could work for a specific person for a specific period of time in their lives. And if you truly value science, you'd run an experiment instead of just cutting it off at the knees. Because if you're just cutting things off at the knees, you're not doing science, not even a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, many, many wise words there and um, obviously many lessons learned from years of working with people. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm the same. Um, I think we all go through an interesting evolution as coaches or practitioners. Uh, I know ref- having reflected on my own sort of 20 odd years of doing stuff that I now look back and go, oh my God, I can't believe I was doing that stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, but, you, know oh, what? but you know what? I was getting awesome results back then. And, mm. and I, you know, and I've, I've, I've critiqued myself heavily. Other people have critiqued me, you know, stuff does happen, but actually I think, hang on, I was still doing a good job. Um, you know, maybe, may, maybe I would, well, no, I would do things differently now, but also you're right. I, I, you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to lynch sort of the pseudoscientist, the bro scientist and so on. But actually, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, as long as, as long as we're not hurting people, as long as it's not dishonest, as long as it's not um, people going out of their way to pull the wool over people's eyes, to, you know, to, to sell something or whatever. Actually, like you say, there's an individual approach to an individual and one size does not fiddle and uh, we need to be mindful of that and um and it's difficult um it is it's totally what i just said is one of the hardest things because you actually have to balance um two different axes of thought 
the first axis is scientific thought. Mm. You know, oh, science has proven that these crazy detoxes don't do anything mm. physiologically, whatever. You know, uh, let's just use that as a placeholder. So that's the axis of scientific thought. But the other axis is human interaction and relationship, right? So you could kill the human interaction by being too science-minded in a coaching exchange and vice versa. You could actually do the wrong thing scientifically and hurt someone by being too human-facing yeah. in an exchange. So it is really hard because there are two axes that aren't dependent on each other that you have to consider when coaching. And so I think it is a challenge, but it becomes fundamentally easier when you can think it all the way through, which is I am a coach and my job is not to debunk people's myths. It's to help this single person in front of me get better. And I can do that using testing and observation, which is if anyone's been trained in science, that's what you do there, right? So why can't I try that in the context of clients? And the reason is that our own pet peeves and superstitions become our greatest liabilities as coaches. And I, I want that to sink in because pet peeves and superstitions are what can ruin our industry too. Like uh, superstitious beliefs about supplements or foods or, or mm. these kind of things can actually lead people astray. Mm. And so we often think as practitioners, we have to you know, disabuse them of these pet peeves and superstitions, but our own will prevent us from succeeding in the same way. Like if I have a superstition or a pet peeve about a particular hot topic nutrition conversation today, I can ruin my client relationships. I can ruin my own quest to learn more because I am so wrapped up in disproving or not believing a thing that I'm unwilling to ever try it with a person. Yeah. And that limits my own personal growth. So I caution people. I, I, it's, one of, it's one of the things I've worked on a lot over the last 10 years. It's to surface my own pet peeves and superstitions and call them out. I'm a human. I'll always have them. All humans will have them. No matter the most rational person you ever meet will have their own pet peeves and superstitions. Yeah. Um, but the way to function successfully and holistically is to at least know what yours are. Know what your biases are. You're still going to commit them and you're still going to make the wrong choice sometimes because of them. But if you know what they are, you're a lot better of a thinker and you'll be a lot more open to discovery and learning than if you don't know what they are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, it, it's certainly something that I think about um, a lot, actually. And um, I think it is it is good for us to be mindful that no matter how right you think you are, no, no matter how much evidence you can you can summon to, you know, to use um, to support your your beliefs, you should still always be mindful that you still could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and my, that's my, <laughs> my favorite analogy I was I was talking with um, a guy named James Heathers who uh, who's a great writer he's a scientist himself um, he works in the HRV area and, and he's a writer he writes about nutrition and fitness and hmm. physiology and um, so he and I were, were talking about this very thing recently and we were talking about how it's I don't know. It's almost uh, I. I find this is patronizing, but I find it really cute the way that humans are. You know, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it reminds me of a very serious children's tea party. <laughs> and 
And the idea is that, you know, my daughter, she's a really, really amazingly strong-willed little girl. And um, so when she has a tea party, she has all of these rules. You know what I mean? Like, mm. no, 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 daddy. You always serve the frog before the monkey. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And no, no, no. You never put the sugar in before the tea. It's always after the tea. So she has these um, stringent rules that you have to follow in her tea parties. And in her mind, they make fantastic sense. And any violation of them ruins the game. You know what I mean? And so, and she will literally say this, the one day I ruined the tea party. And so she wouldn't talk to me, so she wrote me a note. And she's just learning to write, she's five years old. Um, so she kind of scribbled out, Daddy, you broke my life. <laughs> That was her message to me. Daddy, you broke my life. I know, it, it, it hits home. Um, because I violated the rules of her tea party. That's how she wouldn't talk to me and she wrote me a note that said I broke her life. Now, this is kids and it's cute. But this is where everyone has to brace themselves. I feel like this is what adults do on a scale much more serious. Our pet peeves and our superstitions are our rules about how science ought to work and how our industry ought to work and how we ought to live and how our clients ought to live. And we are serving the frogs before the monkeys and putting always the tea in before the sugar. And sometimes we're just playing at a tea party. And if we can expose that for ourselves, um, and I don't even need you to go out and expose that for others because... (laughs) I have enough work to do to expose my own rather than worry about anyone else, you know. Um, Then we can actually understand, well, we're having a tea party. These rules may be more arbitrary than I like to think. And wow, I could be open to learning something new. So I don't have to write a note to the world that it broke my life. Um, So anyway, I I think it's really important and it's really hard. And starting out in your scientific journey, um, it's easy to forget because when you get indoctrinated in the scientific process, um, and I, I love it, I, I, I think it's our best way of getting at learning new things that can predict future occurrences. Um, and I, so much that I, I did a whole minor in the philosophy of science beyond the practice of science. Mm. Um, the, uh, the, it, it becomes very seductive to think that we are pursuing truth and that, um, you know, I don't know, that the things that we've learned so far are proven. Yeah. And um, yeah, anyone who, who's deep into science knows we haven't proven anything. We've just made m- slightly more predictable models than yeah. the last. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to me, that is, if you understand it, the ultimate dose of humility. That we don't really know, we haven't proven anything. So you need to be flexible and open to the idea that there are still a ton of testable hypotheses. And whether you're working in science or not, or just as a coach, you can test them. It's one of the things I take great delight in. I test loads of hypotheses. I mean, not only is coaching 20,000 people a year give us one of the largest data sets on body transformation available. but we actually can do individual tests with individual clients and small groups. And we do this kind of stuff all the time. And anyone who's followed my work knows I do this kind of stuff on myself all the time. So to me, it's just fun. It's, it's, it's a frontier of learning that's available to you. But it's unavailable if you're full of pet peeves and superstitions and unwilling to test. 
So I'll get down off my soapbox on that, but obviously it's something I feel pretty strongly about. Yeah, no, well, no, I, I'm very pleased you, you shared that. I, I share your thoughts there. Um, and that was a great sort of end, actually, uh, a topic to end on because, you know, we've run out of time um, on this podcast. So I'm extremely uh, grateful for you to share um, time between your um, feeling the monkey before the frog. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so um, I'd just like to, uh, I always end this in, in the same way. If you could perhaps uh, give the listeners a bit of information about how they can find out more about you guys, uh, website, Twitter, that sort of thing. What are the main ways of staying in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love people to just pop over to precisionnutrition.com if they can and uh, see what we're up to. I mean, we have sections for fitness professionals. We have sections for men and women interested in in uh, improving their own health and fitness. We have a blog with, I don't know, we're 600 article, free articles and running now. We have a bunch of free courses that cover all kinds of interesting topics. So, you know, I'd love people to just pop over there. And since this is a podcast, we actually have our own podcast that we launched a few months ago now. Yeah. Two of them, actually. Uh, one is called Eat, Move, and Live Better. And that's for more like the, the lay population. Uh, so people just interested in doing those things. And then we have another podcast for fitness professionals called The Complete Fitness Professional. And so I was really pleased with the launch of those. I mean, we uh, it was maybe four or five months ago we launched those. And I, I think we may have you know, 60, 70,000 subscribers. Um, so uh, we end up doing a lot of great content on there as well. So if you are inclined to listen to podcasts, come check ours out. And if you're inclined to use the web, come come by the website. I, I'd love to hear from you guys, know what you thought of this conversation and know if there's any way we can help. Yeah, no, well that, no that's awesome. And uh, I can recommend your precision nutrition certification. As I said, I've done it myself about four or five years ago. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I, one of the various things I do is I also run the ISSN um, postgraduate diploma program. And we... I know that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, uh, we, we actually encourage people to do the precision nutrition program. And we also look at your <clears> certification <throat> as one of the potential entry routes onto the program if they don't have a relevant degree. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I had a conversation with uh, Joey Antonio recently. And oh, for awesome. those of you who don't know, he's yeah. he's uh, one of the founders of the ISSN. And um, so we've been having some conversation about how better to integrate the two programs because mm. I think they are very complementary. Yes. And people probably ask you this all the time. Which one should I do, the ISSN or the Precision Nutrition Certification? Mm. And my but. answer is, yeah, that's it. My yeah. answer is, if, if you are going to be in this field for your career, eventually you will do both. Yeah. People who commit to continuing education do multiple continuing education programs. Cool. And if you're interested in nutrition, supplementation in this area, um, you'll eventually do both. So yeah. just figure out which one is more relevant to you right now. Do that one first. Exactly. And then you'll do the other one later. Exactly. So that's, that's always my answer. And so... Uh, I know Joey believes the same thing, so we're uh, trying to figure out some ways that we can make it easier for people to do both. Awesome. Well, I, I'm pleased to hear that. Um, so anyway, that brings us to the end of the podcast. John, thank you very much for, for your time. Um, I've already mentioned uh, about the ISSN uh, program and the ISSN diploma, um, ISSNdiploma.com. You can learn more about this podcast and all the other things we get up to at Guru Performance and Guru performance.com and of course I am the program leader 
for the Master of Science in Sports and Exercise Nutrition Programme at Middlesex University. So you can come and study with me there. And of course, I want to thank our uh, sponsors, Healthspan Elite, um, um, who uh, produce uh, evidence-based um, and informed sport-tested uh, uh, sports nutrition supplements. You can find out more about them at healthspanelite.co.uk. Um, Thank you all for listening. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon.